right, so uh, everyone did a great job. The office looks amazing, um, worked really hard. Uh, I think he thought it was pretty cool, so we can talk about that. So, uh, you know, it's a great day today. We have Keith Raboy here to visit us, and we're going to do a little fireside chat. I've got some questions that you guys have submitted, so I'll go through some of those, and uh, we'll probably open it up for questioning. Um, I'll just give you a little bit of background on Keith. Um, went to Stanford and then Harvard, is that correct? And was a was an attorney, I wanna adjust those. Uh, was an attorney for a little while, decided um, to leave that, joined a startup, and then right after that joined PayPal, is that right? So worked with all the people that we know in the PayPal Mafia, was part of the PayPal Mafia. That's a really cool picture if you, if you look at it online, um, sitting with all the Mafia there. Um, after that, um, Keith, um, left PayPal, joined LinkedIn, I believe. Is that the next thing? Yep. So with Reed Hoffman, uh, worked on business development at LinkedIn, then um, uh, joined Square as the COO, um, had a brief stint at Slide, I think, somewhere in between there. Um, but also has been in a personal investor in companies like YouTube, um, is an investor in Palantir, is an investor in you know, a lot of billion dollar companies. Um, his latest gig is a general partner at Coastal Ventures. And as you know, he uh, led our Series B round, so we're super excited about that. Um, you know, one thing interesting about, I'll say two things very interesting that, about Keith is, one, um, he's helped build more billion dollar companies than anybody I personally know, which is pretty cool. Um, <laughs> we gotta get you to meet some new people. Yeah. <laughs> it's the Columbus, Ohio effect. Oh, no, uh, which is really awesome. And two, it, when we look for investors, kind of one of the things one of the key things that we look for is keen insight. So we think that's super important. Uh, we think Drive Capital and Chris Olson, our board member, had that. And we, you know, Keith is certainly known for having that. So he has the ability to kind of like laser cut through any situation and provide keen insight, which is incredibly valuable to a company like ours as we're growing. So without further ado, help me welcome Keith Raboy. All right, Keith. So I have a few questions that the, that the company put together. So we'll start with some of those. But first, this is your first time in Columbus? It is, I've been to Cleveland before, but never here. Yeah, so you told me that when you were in Cleveland before, you were doing depositions as an attorney, so. I was taking air, airplane depositions. It's a great, great career path. Yeah, so an awesome, awesome first uh, re impression of Ohio when you were there originally. In but. some hotel somewhere. Yeah, hopefully yeah. this is better, right? Oh, uh, it's much better. Cool, so first question is, since you've been to Ohio so far today, What's the best thing you've seen since you've been here? Uh, the office. The office is really cool. Awesome. Some of you may have noticed I was taking photos and posting them in various social media places. Uh, I think a lot of it's really cool. Thanks. Uh, these, these guys worked really hard on getting it done. Uh, what's the, so you saw we had the core values around the room. What's kind of the one that your favorite stood out? <laughs> I like the first one you showed me, actually. Excuses um, are for you, losers. Yeah, excuses are for losers. That's the one I posted on Facebook. I have a sort of philosophy. Um, when I interview people, anybody, anytime someone blames something else, if you're a senior person, it means absolutely I'll just throw you out, like you're not gonna get the job. If you're a junior person and you kind of blame somebody for some external something, I might give you like a yellow flag mark and you get like two of those and then you're not gonna get hired. So it resonated with me instantly. Uh, a lot of people liked it on Facebook. I got about yeah. 30 people liking it so far. So we're a social media sensation now. Yeah, social awesome. media sensation. Everybody's yeah. asking where's this company? Maybe we've got you some recruits. Yeah, no, that's cool, yeah. So. That's, so that's an interesting thing. So we're here in Columbus, Ohio. Obviously, most of the companies that your firm and other firms invest in are located in the Bay Area. 
Um, so what do you think is one of the key things that companies can do to overcome kind of the geography challenge? Um, I think it's mostly traction and vision, um, which are related, but like vision, ambition, like what's the purpose of the company, what's it going to do, why is it unique and compelling, why is it going to change the world? And then secondly, showing that there's actually real traction against that you know, objective. Um, I think cutting through the clutter, that's the best way to do it. Um, people are willing to move and relocate and you know, persuade their family or significant others if there's something special going on, and that's culture, traction, and impact. Cool. Do you think uh, there's going to be more of a trend of people investing in companies outside of Bay Area? I don't know. I mean, so there's good and bad reasons to invest outside the Bay Area. Like, for example, one of my friends who's a partner some fund in New York told me that I'd be crazy to ever invest outside the Bay Area. And I said, well, what do you mean? And when I was first starting to do this job, and he said, well, look, there's so many good companies in Silicon Valley. If you can't find good ones there, you're never going to find them. Um, so, you know, um, so to some extent, there's, you know, there is a lot of, there are a lot of good companies in Silicon Valley. Um, that said, I think, you know, I spent breakfast with the drive guys and they were persuading me that the future is all here. Yeah. Um, not just this building, but generally. And they had, they made some pretty impressive points, actually, that resonated with me. So um, I think there are a lot of advantages in not being out, out, not being in Silicon Valley. One is the cost of Silicon Valley is just absurd. Um, like the real estate costs, both residential and actually office space at the moment is is just ludicrous. And so it, it tends to drive up compensation, which tends to drive up like burn, which tends to make things pretty precarious. Like the companies have to raise a lot of money before they actually really are ready for that amount of money. And it's easy to blow those companies up um, if the macro market changes. Um, so that's bad. Um, secondly, I think um, there's a bit of an entitlement culture in Silicon Valley. It depends where people went to school and what their backgrounds are, but they believe sort of like, well, you know, we either raised this money, I have this fancy degree, and therefore I'm, you know, entitled to people like chasing after me, which isn't really true about the world. Um, so that, that's a negative, and I think you can get, you can avoid that by being located elsewhere. Those are probably the two biggest negatives at the moment. Mm. Um, obviously, there's a talent pool. There's a lot of people who are pretty talented, but everybody else is also trying to attract the same people. So it kind of cuts both ways. You can find you know, 20 amazing engineers, but there's 20 other companies that are all giving them offers at the same time. And so it depends on whether you're going to be the single best magnet for talent in Silicon Valley, in which case it's an advantage. If you're not the single best, then it's probably a disadvantage. So uh, there's a lot of, you have a lot of videos that you've done like um, on YouTube and one of the ones I think is the most popular is your startup school, uh, the Y Combinator videos, which uh, I think most people here have watched and uh, that was a great series and we, we all enjoyed that. Uh, one of the things you talked about there was um, bullets or uh, versus barrels. Barrels and ammunition. Yeah, barrels and ammunition, which we, you know I think is very interesting. Uh, can you kind of recap that for yep. the ones who haven't heard it? Sure. So you can build from this and you can kind of explore this broadly, but the general point was that there are two kinds of people you basically hire, two kinds of really good people actually. There's ammunition and there's barrels. And any team that's functional has to have a ratio of those two things that's in balance. So if you have a bunch of leaders but nobody just does stuff, the team tends not to get things done. And then if you have a bunch of ammunition but no one's really cal cal uh, galvanizing the team or figuring out which hills to attack, Again, the team doesn't tend to get things done very well. And so by editing, I guess, the, the composition of a team, you can get disproportionate returns on performance. 
And so a friend of mine sort of coined the metaphor. I kind of borrowed it and popularized it, which he hates, because now everybody gives me credit for it. <laughs> we were just at dinner Friday night, and he was bemoaning the fact that nobody knows who he is. Um, so I, to I, told him, I told him there's a transcript. give him credit? Yeah, there's a transcript on I, I do sometimes in some speeches, but there's, there's a transcript on Rap Genius um, where you can uh, you know, make editorial comments and annotate. And I said, yeah. you know, there's this genius thing. You should log in and put an annotation there. Um, that would be appropriate credit. But anyway, um, you can build a lot off that idea. So I think it's resonated with a lot of people um, and startups we work with um, in terms of thinking through the total team composition. Oh, absolutely. So we, we like to think, you know, here being here in the Midwest, you know, as opposed to attracting a lot of talent, and we talked about this earlier, we're discovering a lot of talent. So yep. this may be the first opportunity people have had to, to show that they have what it takes to build a company like this. Can you think of anybody in your past that kind of was a discovered talent that we would all know today as a pretty successful. Oh yeah, sure. I mean, that was our philosophy back in the PayPal days. I mean, I sometimes describe it as the the PayPal crowd was a bunch of misfits. Um, all of us were about I don't know, 25 to maybe a little younger, 24 to 30 years old. Um, nobody in the company had any experience building a software or anything or technology company for the most part. Um, not connected to anybody in Silicon Valley. And Peter and Max, uh, went, Peter Thiel and Max Levinson went around like finding people, mostly friends of theirs from high school or college, um, to recruit. Um, mm -hmm. The smartest, you know, most ambitious, highest work ethic people they knew from school and convinced them to mostly to drop out, actually. There's a, a huge fraction of the engineering team were dropouts that Max persuaded to drop out, mostly at the University of Illinois, um, and come out to Silicon Valley. And then Peter had friends from Stanford that he convinced to join. And so there's this crazy misfit crusade that just happened to work out. But I remember going actually for a jog my first week at PayPal around the Stanford campus, which is kind of very broad and widely distributed, so you can kind of run forever. And uh, we were going for a run. He's like, what do you think about the company, blah, 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 kind of a good thing to do with you know, first week employees. And we wound up getting this management philosophy sort of conversation. And he made this point to me, this is literally my first week, that the only way to build a company is to be able to find at scale undiscovered talent. Because you can't compete for the people who, who you know, if you're a startup, you can't compete for the people who've already done something before because everybody else wants the same people. And so why are they going to join your one little quote unquote shitty startup, you know, when you're starting if, if you know, they have offers from everybody else? So Peter's like, you've got to find people that don't have anything on the resume that other people don't know how to evaluate and you have a competitive advantage in. So being a sports fan, um, I sort of translated that to like drafting, you know, sort of athletes out of college, let's say, you know, into professional basketball, baseball, football, hockey, whatever your favorite sport is, and that you have to learn to get great at that. Where to find these people, how to identify them before they have credentials on the resume. And so I spent the last, I don't know, 14 years or so of my career sort of getting proficient, hopefully, at that. If anything, that's probably the thing I've learned to do the best. Yeah, well, so you weren't always find, good at Find that. crazy people um, that other people would never hire, yeah. and hope you're right once in a while, and yeah, and they can be really stellar. So um, were you good at that by the time you left PayPal, or do you think it evolved? I wasn't. I was good at it within the company. Mm -hmm. So within the company of let's say 250 people or so, I could go around the company and find these kind of stars that were kind of undervalued um, or weren't being highly leveraged, and kind of recruit them to come to my team. Mm -hmm. I wasn't very good at picking people up like that from an interview. Yeah. So I was kind of random on my interview hires. Like there were some good ones, there were some bad ones, but when I pulled people off of other teams, which my senior colleagues didn't love, but when I did, um, they turned out to be very successful. And so then afterwards, I took a step back and said, well, you know, how do you figure out how to do this scalably, which means with outsiders, not just with insiders. And it took me a little bit longer to do that. It's actually a lot like investing, because when you invest as a seed angel investor, companies really what you're investing in is a couple founders, like 
product may not have launched. There's certainly no metrics that supported success. So you're really gauging people. And a lot of the best founders in, in the history of Silicon Valley like never did anything before. They mostly dropouts actually. Yeah, no, that's interesting. One of the we, so we we have a VP here that likes to recruit for men. Now that I think about it, so maybe he's following your footsteps. Do anybody know who I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah, the, the, the politically incorrect version of this that um, Peter used at the time was basically don't hire anybody over 30, and not because he didn't like people over 30, but his basic point was by the time you're 30, the market can all can evaluate everybody equally yeah. because you have enough data sort of on your resume or your LinkedIn profile now that everybody in the world can kind of look at the same data and can evaluate it equally. But if you find someone who has like no data, then other people, they don't know how to process this. Google doesn't know how to process somebody with no data. Apple doesn't know how to process, Facebook doesn't. So you can actually find people in a, in a, you know, with a competitive advantage. Yeah, huh, that's interesting. How many people here are their first job out of college or first job in general? Oh, very cool. Um, so one of the questions that the employees ask is, what do you value more than the idea or the people? And I think this is one of your, the common questions that we hear. So. Yeah, so we have an expression that derives from my boss, uh, Vinod Kosala, It says basically the team you build is the company you build. Because ultimately the right team is gonna edit the idea, change the idea, modify the idea, um, and come up with a really interesting idea. So if you have the right people and you have a critical density of the right people, you wind up going the right places. Um, now the idea can be important independently in the beginning because one of the ways you assemble a core group of people is tackling something that is interesting and compelling to um, very talented people. So if you started saying, hey, we're going to reinvent garbage cans, you know, possibly there's a big market. I actually haven't looked at the market size for garbage cans in the world, it's but big, um, <laughs> there may be a big market there, but it'd be very hard to convince like some of the coolest, smartest, talented people that this is what they should do for their life's mission for five to 10 years. Yeah. Um, now, presumably though, if you did have a group of three to five uh, super talented people and you were doing garbage cans, that team itself would probably figure out how to do something different um, with yeah. garbage cans, um, with, you know, before someone as an investor would tell them to do something different. But so it does become a little bit uh, self-referential, but I would start with people. You can always build around the right people. Yeah, no, that makes sense. What, you know, you're, you've founded a company here recently, so uh, op Open Door. Yeah, it should be coming. Uh, I mean, Columbus would be a very good market for it, so I have a good excuse to come back, actually. Yeah, no, absolutely. Come and scout some houses out. Um, oh, yeah. So it's, it was really interesting. So you have these companies that are transforming these large industries that have been so consistent over the years. Healthcare is a good example. Real estate is a great example. Benefits, I mean, we see this across the board. Do you think those tend to be the biggest, most enduring companies, the ones that are transforming the kind of the more infrastructure? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, there's clearly some great examples in transforming a large archaic industry, financial services, real estate, healthcare, you know, benefits mm -hmm. being examples of those. There are clearly transformative companies that create something from scratch. Mm -hmm. that no one knew even existed as a problem. You can even think of oracles that way, like database. Like no one knew they needed a database before Oracle. Sure. Now, of course, it's a massive market. Everybody, right. like there's a billion database companies, in fact, each doing pretty well. But like, so I think like some of the new newfangled stuff that is creating a market um, as opposed to disrupting a market can be just as important, if not more important. I mean, Amazon started, you know, reinventing a market. Uber started reinventing a market, but they'll probably wind up creating something yeah. new too. Where would you put, where would you put LinkedIn in there? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I would say more created a market, although obviously there was executive recruiting, there were recruiting and sourcing, there were databases that executive recruiters would use to find people's profiles. 
but there wasn't like a scalable place. Everybody had a resume, but they were all fragmented. Like I owned my resume. Each of you had your resume probably on your computer, on your laptop, or on some disk. And there wasn't like a database um, of disks. So the recruiting market of buying and selling talent and finding talent existed. Monster.com, there was early generations of this career builder, hot jobs. Um, but it's kind of a new thing too. Yeah. So it's somewhere in between. Yeah, it's, uh, look back on your career. I mean, it seems like, you know, PayPal reinventing payments and reinventing payments again with Square and YouTube being really the creating the, you know, video, um, basically disrupting or transforming the way people watch video from TV to now online. Uh, do you think that, like, that's kind of in your DNA to want to recreate these, these archaic industries? I'm not a, uh, yes, I mean, obviously, the, you can't be afraid of these industries. Like, I actually like heavily regulated industries like YouTube. You mm -hmm. know, there's a lot of legal issues. Copyright, yeah. Um, financial services, whether PayPal Square, Zoom, anything like that. Now real estate. Yeah, real estate's moderately regulated by that standard. Healthcare, very regulated. But things like Yelp, you know, not too much regulation. It's, um, Airbnb has regulation, you know, Lyft, which I invested in like pretty early, has a fair, fair amount of regulation, although Uber's been taking more of the <laughs> swords. Yeah, um, they've been fighting the fight. Yeah, for, for better or for worse. I mean, yeah. Uber's a more valuable company, but it's also been taking almost all the inbound missives. Yeah, um, right. So there's, there's trade-offs there. But um, yeah, so one of the advantages of having a legal degree is maybe being slightly more comfortable or naively confident <laughs> taking on regulated industries. Um, so, you know, YouTube, I did all the diligence myself on IP um, for better force and then convinced, you know, our friends at Sequoia to invest um, with basically my, me doing the legal work um, mm -hmm. on the side, which I got mostly right. Um, <laughs> that was Roloff? Uh, Roloff, yeah. My Roloff was a friend and um, he was our CFO at PayPal and he'd yeah. just gone over to Sequoia as a partner. He's been there like 13 years now. Yeah. So the uh, on Open Door question I had. This is just a kind of a personal thought. Um, as you start to get involved in this transactional real estate market, do you see a lot of the value add of Open Door being on some of the services that kind of surround the transaction? Not in the short term. So what Open Door allows you to do basically is sell your house in 30 seconds online. So if you own a house, you almost surely know that actually buying. Neither buying nor selling is particularly fun. If you happen to try to sell your house, there's not like a lot of ways to do it easy or fast or cheap. So it costs like six to eight percent to sell your house. Usually takes about ninety day ninety days um, from the time you list to the time you close with the buyer. So what we do is make that like instant. So you can actually literally walk out of your house in three days with the cash. Um, we give you an offer automatically. So you just put in your address. We use data science to value it. You have an offer confirmed, and you're pretty much good to go. You can move out three to 60 days later and you're done. It's a little bit more expensive. So we charge a fee for the convenience and simplicity and certainty, but it, over time the price will come down as well. So it's live in Phoenix. We'll be bringing it to Dallas and Las Vegas and actually Columbus would be pretty high on the yeah. list of you, next five, 10 markets. Can you start with Dayton, Ohio? Cause we have a VP of product that needs to sell his house pretty desperately. <laughs> we, can, we, can, we can do an experiment there. Yeah. <laughs> well, that so yeah, <laughs> actually when we were doing, when we were doing research on this, um, ironically, somehow or another we found a house in Ohio and it was gorgeous. I mean, like gorgeous five bedrooms, yeah. 13, 13th best public school district on a golf course, mm -hmm. everything you'd want. And it was, the price was like, for us in Silicon Valley, it was like one 
fifth to one twentieth of what we'd expect to pay. Mm -hmm. And I looked at this, I was like, we should buy this house and move the whole company into this house. <laughs> <laughs> and my co-founders looked at me and said, we're quitting. <laughs> so I understand the problem. But um, no, in any, in any event, like um, basically, the real estate market is so large and so archaic in the United States, despite all the friction I just mentioned, cost, you know, time. Last year, five million Americans sold their house. And this year, you know, five plus million Americans will sell their house. So we don't, and they'll pay $100 billion in fees, by the way. So it's a massive, massive market. That said, you need a, most people who buy a house in the United States buy with a mortgage. And the mortgage industry is pretty archaic and pretty messy, and it takes 30 or 40 days to get your mortgage. Some of you may be familiar with that. So we may steer a lot of people to new mortgages or may need to create better mortgages just for ourselves to make the transactions faster. So that's a big market opportunity. Mm -hmm. There's things that are also archaic, like title insurance, yeah, that's one of the which ones is I was thinking of. absolutely ridiculous. Mm -hmm. um, there's a few escrow services. There's a lot of these services and fees that go into real estate that are just very, very large as a function of 5 million Americans selling their house all the time. And none of these have been really reinvented since, to some extent, the 1800s. Yeah. Um, so yes, over time, but there's so much to do in the, in the short term that it's not really something we need to tackle. Now, the mortgage one we may need to because when we sell, we buy a house from you, sir, or from you, um, we need to resell that house. And when we resell that house, that buyer gives us an offer, which we accept usually within seven to 21 days, but then he or she is waiting for a uh, mortgage to clear. And we're sitting holding that uh, sort of house on our books while that mortgage is pending, which is not good for us. And so we may need to innovate on the mortgage side so that this buyer shows up, gives us a contract, we accept the offer, and they can have a mortgage right sure. away. Just like when you buy a car, yeah. most car dealerships you know, offer you like, financing on the spot, which enables you to buy a car relatively quickly. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and the car dealerships now, most of their money is made on like, financing and all the premium stuff yeah. they sell around the car itself. Yep. In fact, they yeah, very, make a slight profit on the vehicle. Right. Uh, so switching gears a little bit, the company has heard me tell the story of like going to San Francisco and raising money and, <laughs> and doing the investment. Uh, I think it'd be interesting to hear your perspective on how that went and you know, what really led you to invest in Crosschecks. Good question. So, well, I got this random email from Chris at Drive saying, hey, we have this company, blah, blah, blah. Um, would you be interested? Now, we happen to have invested, we're one of the few funds, although it's becoming more popular these days in Silicon Valley, to have invested in a lot of healthcare-oriented startups. So about four or five years ago, our fund, uh, predating my arrival, which is about two and a half years ago, started investing in the reinvention of healthcare, mostly using data to reinvent healthcare. Um, and Vinod has this philosophy that one day there won't be doctors, that all the stuff, all the decisions will be made by machines, math. Um, and that's probably true. Um, that at least the diagnosis is better done by math over time than by people. Um, but put that aside for a second. So we started investing on that hypothesis. So you were like a natural fit as soon as I saw what you did, which was, oh, this is a perfect fit for the kinds of things we like, which is technology leverage, you know, a vision of reinventing healthcare and making it better and with actual real adoption. So we were also pretty savvy about how difficult it is to get penetration and adoption among hospitals, even for a free product. Having worked with a lot of our companies that want access to data, that want you know, experimental pilots in various hospitals, it's extraordinarily difficult for a variety of reasons. And so it immediate, you know, we also immediately appreciated the success you were having and how rare that was. Um, so that was a pretty good fit. So then um, you know, we met at a coffee shop, which yep. is probably a Silicon Valley way to raise money. <laughs> um, hipster coffee shop. And, 
<laughs> then I think I set you up for like real meetings in the office with my partners. Yeah. Um, so you actually got to see like a, a true Silicon Valley office. Yeah. But uh, and that's pretty much you know how yeah. this came to be. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah, we're super excited. I mean, I think the company has. Uh, definitely benefited from you know the influx of cash and we've been able to grow very quickly yeah the so, other map upstairs that shows yeah you know the before and after yeah exactly <laughs> yeah you can see the explosion after the series I may, I may need to use that with other founders like yeah, show that before go. and after like, you, yeah. if you take money from us this, this is what, what happened to you <laughs> I like that we can, can I get a video <laughs> yeah we can certainly sell that to you no, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so on the on the idea of scaling. So what do you pay the most attention to when scaling a company successfully? That is a very good question. Um, I think it varies by company. So most important thing is scaling customers. Because ultimately, if you have customer, infinite customer demand or a lot of customer demand, you can solve almost any other problem. And if you don't have customer demand, doing everything else well won't solve your problems. So it's like, is there the jargonistic phrase you know, of being product market fit, but fundamentally, is there a lot of customers that really want what you're selling? And if so, then you should just sell or give it to them as fast as humanly possible and then figure out what cracks emerge because there will be cracks that emerge as you have lots and lots and lots and lots of customers. And you can throw bodies at the problems at first. Like you don't need software. You don't need math. Just throw human labor at like the cracks, like holding this thing together like with just energy. Then at some time you want to scale that because you can't hire all the people on the planet. And if there's enough cracks, the customers eventually get annoyed. So you try to use like techniques for predicting what's likely to go wrong. And then you hire people that build systems that basically replace humans and hopefully have a very coherent, healthy system. So what tends to crack on the human side is like at different levels of humans. Humans are kind of irrational. The world's full of irrational humans. Um, and so when you get a lot of irrational people together, lots of bad things happen. Um, not, it's well, well-intentioned, these are all well-intentioned rational people, let alone, irrational people, let alone like bad intention. Um, so then, you know, at very thin processes, like humans need to be divided into teams and they need goals and objectives. They need transparency and access to information. And then you need techniques for providing that and auditing that. Different humans perform at different levels and you need feedback loops and you need, you know, ways of upgrading people, like mentoring them or replacing them. You know, there's all these systems or human systems that actually aren't um, particularly um, easy to find really good ones, partially because most of uh, American society and world history is companies generally historically don't go, don't grow this fast. So you have in normal company history or normal human evolution, things like sort of evolve like this, which gives you a time to teach people, mentor people, replace people, build new systems. When companies grow like this, there really isn't anything designed for that. And so they tend, that, that's where the art is in like scaling a company is when companies go like this, anybody, anybody in quotes can do it. Companies that go like vertical, like a really, really difficult problem of going from like 20 employees to 50 employees, going from 50 employees to 250 employees in a year, and then going, doing it all over again. Like even the systems of identifying talent start breaking. Like if you're gonna hire 50 engineers in a year and you have 30 today, you can't use the same system that got you the first 30, it just won't work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this next question, um, this, this came from s someone in the company. I don't know who it was, but it's interesting because I think it's a roundabout way as a jab at me, but well, it's just, uh, <laughs> uh, this should be fun. Yeah. So it says when, when it comes, so this is referring to one of the talks that you gave about being an editor versus being a writer. Um, and it says when it comes, when it comes to a product, should the CEO 
be more of an editor or a writer? Well, the CEO should almost always be an editor. That said, a lot of the better companies that we've worked with have the CEO sort of playing two roles, which is the CEO and VP of product. Now, that has advantages and disadvantages. One of the advantages is does tend to create a pretty good product. It crowds out the opportunity for the CEO to do other things. I mean, obviously, there's 24 hours in a day. You know, even if you sleep in the office, you still wind up with only 24 hours in a day. And so someone else, other people are going to need to step in the other functions um, and, and you know, sort of offset that. Mm -hmm. um, but so we're, it is not a bad idea to have a VP product, quasi-CEO or quasi-CEO, VP of product. Um, that said, you still are looking for more of an editorial model over time. Um, and editing is, again, around asking the right questions. Um, synthesizing voices um, because there tends to be like an inconsistent voice through multiple teams, um, assigning and allocating resources, like we're going to do this feature, this product, this app, not that one, uh, just like an editor in a newspaper would cover you know, sports versus news versus business versus international politics. Um, but most of the best ideas often come bottom up in a newspaper or a magazine, and that should be true of a company over time that more and more of the ideas are uh, originated from the diverse set of people, and then they're filtered, prioritized, synthesized together into a coherent you know, whole um, by whether it's a VP of X or the CEO. I mean, ultimately, the company needs to speak with one consistent voice and have a coherent roadmap, a consistent strategy across you know, all sort of silos, and that is actually you know, the CEO's responsibility one way or the other to ensure that that happens. It's great if you can just say, I, I would love to one day have a job where I can just sit back and it all automatically happens, and I just nod my head and say, this is great, this is great, this is great. It almost never works that way, though. Yeah, no, that's great. I feel like um, you're describing a lot of the things that we're going through now as we grow from, you know, we, when we first met you, I think we had 30-some people in the company, now we're over 100. So a lot of those challenges are being presented now as we kind of evolve as a company. Wait until you get 150 people. Yeah, yeah is that as another, probably, well, another as step? You yeah. may know from your military history, like there's a reason why, like basically military is divided 150 yeah, people. It becomes virtually impossible to remember everybody's names at 150 people. It becomes extremely difficult to remember what they're working on, impossible to know how well they're doing their job. Mm -hmm. And so you need like systems and processes to do those things because you can't do it just you know, through your own RAM memory. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, one of the, so on the product itself, I mean, you saw some products today. Uh, what are some your feedback on some of the products you saw today? Um, well, as you know, I figured out you're asking way too many questions in the, uh, yeah. <laughs> in the current product, but uh, hopefully you can strip, streamline some of that. But uh, second, um, the most important, I love the search engine idea. Like, I think that is, would be incredibly compelling and in have incredible output like in society, outcome and uh, impact in society. Um, I think even in the demo form, it's arresting. Sure. Like I could imagine myself if I had unfettered access to that, playing around with it all day long. Mm -hmm. um, so I can see that that being incredible, incredible, like enriching the data so that you can provide that, you can provide that within one system or across systems. Um, that's the holy grail that a lot of people talk about in healthcare and it's the closest. I've never seen anybody actually demo anything before as opposed to talk about okay, it or, power, about it. or yeah. key, keynote it. Um, that so that, cool. that, was, that was probably the most notable you know, awesome. arresting part. Of yeah, no, that's good to hear. Um, yeah, we were, we're proud of that, that capability. And as, we, as we've talked about, 
I mean, our whole idea is that we're going to create the internet for healthcare that never existed before. And some of the basic services for the internet are things like a browser and a search engine. And that's part of that infrastructure layer that we're building. Classified uh, ads, you know. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, all the good stuff that comes with the internet. Right? You need a bookstore. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we'll do all that. Um, you know, we, we got to talk, there's a lot of sales, uh, people in sales and, and organization here, and you got to see a little bit of our J2T, our targeting yeah. concept. So um, for those who here on the targeting cell, uh, can you kind of give your feedback and thoughts on that? <laughs> My feedback on that was maybe you should turn the whole company into that and sell that to other companies. <laughs> but um, that's, that's a totally different direction with you know, different societal impact. Um, secondly is um, you should do more of it. Um, you know, scale the team that does that, uh, absolutely. Third, you should probably talk about it to future investors. Like it mm -hmm. is a competitive advantage that you're building. It's, um, you know, some of the examples were incredibly arresting and, you know, much better than what other companies would do. Yeah, have you ever seen, have you seen anything similar to that? Not, not that way. I've seen other targeting, you know, based upon data that uses like regressions to figure out, you know, sort of what's the best thing we can do with the opportunity cost, uh, but not like that level of sophistication in terms of targeting packages. That was pretty cool. I also wanted to buy one. I was like, can you build this for me and Chris? Um, so like, that's yeah. usually a good sign. That's happened we, a few times, it's, actually. Yeah, it's, it's usually good when yeah. you show someone a demo, they're like, can I buy this? That's yeah. the, generally the right reaction. Yeah, I remember Zero Gravity, and everybody here knows very well. So we built something like that for a healthcare company, a Fortune 500 healthcare company nearby that saw what we were able to do and wanted to pay a lot of money for it. So we built a one-off and then realized it was... Everybody like, is not the best business model. Yeah, exactly. Um, no, that's cool. So when it comes to similarities and differences from our company and other companies that you've seen be very successful, what is similar about what you've seen with Crosschecks and the companies that have been very successful and what's different? Well, so every successful company is kind of its own custom brew. Um, there's no formula you can apply and say, we're going to make this company successful. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's basically a function of the market one is um, tackling and the founder's personality in some ways and skills and traits. And they bring that together into a coherent way that tends to work. And each one is pretty unique. Um, but what I'd say the most obvious takeaways from, you know, admittedly, eight hours or whatever of exposure here. Um, so not, not massive data points, but um, commit, commitment, um, missionary zeal, uh, work ethic, um, ownership mentality all seem to stand out well. Those generally predict success. So those are the best, um, most obvious characteristics. Cool. Um, the biggest difference is, um, well, the real estate cost. <laughs> um, if you had an office like that looked like this at this size um, in Silicon Valley, it'd be three to ten x more expensive per month. Um, so that 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 shows up on your and where that matters, not just as a joke, but where that actually matters is that would therefore show up on your balance sheet. Yeah. And the burn rate mm -hmm. the company would be going through would look massive compared to yours, which would mean the company would be running out of money at a re relatively rapid clip, which means it would be on this infinite treadmill of raising, raising more money to mostly pay for real estate, which makes no sense. So it actually does affect the outcome more than people, I think, realize at the moment. Do you think Crunchbase should apply an exchange rate for companies on their rounds? <laughs> the better base in the Midwest. Well, you can certainly get a hell of a lot more done. Um, you know, like without a doubt. I mean, the fuel, like it's basically like fuel has, let's say, the dollars still have the same cost, but the fuel will go a lot further sure. um, towards a destination. Yeah, I feel like that 
you know, there's a difference when you see someone raising $20 million in Columbus, Ohio, versus someone raising $20 million in San Francisco as far as how far they'll be able to oh, get. Oh, $20 million goes, you, you go through like a snap of your fingers in, in Silicon Valley at the moment because the real, the real estate compounded by people's salaries just creates this like $20 million is like a year or yeah. so, which is absurd. When I was growing up, actually Kwame uh, was on my board at LinkedIn. He used to advise us that a 500K burn rate was high. <laughs> and that's like, that was only 10 years ago. So like yeah. things have changed a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that wall right there to your left, that's our doppelganger wall. So everybody in the company has a like celebrity doppelganger of who they look like. <laughs> so they wanted me to ask you, who do you think your celebrity doppelganger is? <laughs> who have people told you you look like a celebrity? Uh, none of them are super flattering, so... Um, <laughs> um, Neither are those. <laughs> I'm, mine's Jonah Hill, so I'm not super proud of that. Yeah, there you go. Thanks. Thanks, Larry. <laughs> definitely, this is definitely the first time I've been asked this question. It is? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. I've never been asked this question before. Um, well, so people used to tell me, this is dating myself. So there's a baseball player, used to play for the Giants, uh, Will Clark. He's actually a pretty good first baseman. So people used to tell me Will Clark when I was growing up. Brad probably has a signed baseball of Will Clark's. <laughs> he, he was actually quite good. Uh, cool. Okay, so we'll put it up on the wall for you for your next visit. Uh, That'll be nine months instead of six months? Yeah, yeah. Well, you'll, you'll be I'll, back no, soon. No, maybe. You'll I'll come back, back faster if you put up yeah. a better celebrity. Yeah, well, okay. We'll work on that. Um, so I want to open up to some questions from the audience. Sure. If that's cool Absolutely. with you. Um, so we'll go ahead and open up. Who has a question for Keith? Kind of whatever you'd like to ask. Anyone? All right, somebody has to raise their hand. All right, Priyank. Um, what is your vision for cross-checks? Like, where would you like to see us go? Or where, you know, as a, as a board member, do you want us to pivot to? Um, well, without trying to avoid your question, so maybe I'll come back to it. Um, but no, no, I mean, uh, it's never my job to come up with a vision for the company. Like, it's a other than Open Door, where it's like my company, I sort of founded it and recruited my co-founders. It's never a good thing if your investors are giving you a vision. That's like a disaster. Um, so I don't really have a vision for any of the companies I'm involved in. I do, I may have an opinion about whether I think the vision, you know, articulated by the CEO or their team is compelling or not, or, you know, will resonate with people, whether investors, media, recruits. So I like, you know, the current vision here, I wouldn't have invested. But um, if I start, if I start uh, calibrating or adjusting or editing even the vision, um, it's usually a really bad sign um, for the company's health. So I, I, I don't want to play with too much fire. Yeah. How, many, how many board meetings do you go to a week? I'm just curious. A week? Um, not too many. Maybe one or two a week. Okay. That's not too, that's no. not too crazy bad. But when you fly to Ohio for them, it's... Takes a few. It takes more time, but yeah. that's why we have to find some more companies to invest in here. Yeah, there you or go. at least tie this to football games. Yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> we can do Saturday board meetings. That works. As long as it's against Michigan, it's fine. Yeah, we don't. Uh, <laughs> so, are you a Michigan or Ohio State fan? I'm a Michigan fan. <laughs> See the colors. <laughs> I knew that was going to be an interesting question. Wait, wait to see Coach Harbaugh here. Yeah, <laughs> I'll bring him next time. Actually, so yeah, that, we'll have Urban Meyer in, yeah. in Harbaugh. Actually, he works so hard that it's almost impossible to get him to do stuff. I thought like you were going to get him to go to Stanford. Uh, he was there. He did oh, well. Okay, try to bring him back. Yeah, we give him back. Yeah, come back. We can't afford him. Uh -huh. Jeff, you had a question. 
we don't have infinite budgets like Ohio State. What's your uh, favorite ROI you've done in your career? Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I'm pausing mostly because I generally don't think about it that way, but it's actually going to be a weird answer. Um, I would answer it mostly on the basis of people, like individual people. Um, so um, I, I think I've been able to convert a couple people from okay to awesome, and um, that's probably the most like valuable and the most rewarding thing. Um, it's not like actually a business metric or a business like um, kind of function per se. Um, I mean, there's lots of business messes I've inherited, um, but they're all, they all kind of blend together at some point and they don't like stand out, but like the people stuff stands out more, um, especially because it's rare and difficult to do. Um, so there are particular individuals that you've had yeah, an impact yeah, on yeah, and like you think that just have, hopefully changed their trajectory. Yeah, and became successful in what yeah, they're doing. Yeah, and then they fail. No, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so um, of your, your kind of PayPal mafia brethren um, that are out, what, what, who, do you, who are you closest to? Like, who do you talk to the most? Who do I talk to the most? Um, a fair variety. Um, roll off. Jeremy Stoppelman, who runs Yelp. Um, Peter, a fair amount. Uh, Max, actually, probably Max, a fair amount. I mean, I serve on Max's board of this company called Affirm yeah. um, today. So probably. Was tech. Coastal an investor in Affirm? Yeah, we led the Series B um, for that. Um, that's probably, yeah, I mean, as a function of board stuff, if nothing else, I'd text, email, or see him certainly weekly, if not daily. And are you, you're not on the board of Yelp anymore, is that right? No, after nine years, eight and a half years. But you're still on Zoom, is that right? Uh, no, I finally, got off, I finally resigned from that. That was 12 years. Oh, These wow. are like long commitments. Yeah, 12, 12 years. 12 years, like I used to be like young, have hair. Now, <laughs> do, you, like, do you ever have a board meeting that lasts all day long? I've heard stories of board meetings that last from like 8 a.m. until... That tends to happen with like more like public companies. Uh-huh. Partially because you spend so much time on process stuff that's like non-substantive. Yeah. There's just a set of things you need to do sure. for compliance, and you therefore waste uh, uh, or invest a fair amount of time. And so you need to leave, allocate enough time for some serious conversations. I don't tend to. Zoom boards tended to be pretty long like that. Um, I tend not to believe in them. I think three. Maybe four hours. I think when the business gets complicated and you have a lot of people and different trade-offs, a four-hour meeting can be pretty productive. I think after four hours, I think you lose a lot of people's attention. Sure. Yeah. People, humans have natural energy cycles and stuff. And I, I think like if you can't compact it into four hours, you probably aren't prioritizing strictly enough. Um, so I, I almost always would try to veto something longer than four hours, but we would definitely do that Zoom. Yelp, even when we were public, I think we were able to keep at three three and a half hours. That's good for a public company, I would imagine. Yeah, it was pretty, pretty efficient. Yeah. And then like that would include like launch. When we're, when we're public, it'll be 30 minutes or less, I think. <laughs> then you're gonna need to have a really good lawyer. <laughs> we just got one. Boom. Congratulations. Did you write that down, 30 minute public board meetings? Okay, cool. Great. Um, so you're pretty well known for your book recommendations. Um, it's actually the second 
you'd be surprised. So if you do a Google search for me, it's now this number two it's result. Number two, yeah, yeah. It's like, People are totally always ridiculous. like talking about your your book recommendations, and I'm trying to get through as many of them as I can. I get stuck on some like Sapiens. I'm trying to get through. Yeah, Sapiens uh, is 400 pages, yeah, it's and it's, tough. the font is pretty small. Yeah, it's a. It's, <laughs> but it's, it's pretty worth. There's not enough pictures for me, but it's it's, it's pretty good. Um, yeah, you need cartoon. I'll, I'll do a cartoon version for you. Yeah, that would be awesome. Like a comic book. <laughs> yeah, a comic like book. Like we did. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Uh, so. Knowing the company here of that list or any books, what would you recommend uh, book-wise for the company to read? Yeah, so I mean, all of you are welcome. I, I published this reading list for entrepreneurs sort of on uh, Medium, and it's a mix of stuff. There's some self-help stuff, <laughs> advice, self-help. Um, then there's some history of Silicon Valley and technology uh, section, um, which is if you want to figure out like why did technology evolve, like why did Silicon Valley happen, who are these people? Like, what do they do? That section, and then there's just some general like great books uh, that may or may not be directly relevant. Um, so, in the in the general books category, I added *Sapiens* recently, which is an awesome book. It's about the history of humans, which may sound boring, but if you read the first chapter or the first even paragraph, you'll figure out quite a, quite 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 quickly it's not boring at all. I've given the book to at least thirty people, like literally handed the book to thirty people, and everybody's like addicted like instantly. Um, so it's the best book I've read in five or 10 years. In the um, history of Silicon Valley's area, if I had to pick one, wow. Um, I'd probably read, um, it's a little old, but I still think it's probably worth it, is uh, The Little Kingdom which is uh, Mike Moritz's history of Apple. So not many people know, not many, a lot of people forget anyway, Mike Morris is probably the single best investor of all time. Um, started as a journalist, and he started as a journalist for Time Magazine. And as part of his function at Time Magazine, covered this little mediocre company called Apple, and started writing some stories about Apple and Time, and eventually turned that into a book. And the book's called The Little Kingdom. And it's pretty, pretty interesting reading, especially if you know Mike's later career path, which he wrote this in like 1980 or 1981 or so. Um, so it's pretty interesting. And then the, the self-help sort of advice side, my new favorite book is uh, called The Upside of Stress. Oh, yeah. Um, which is uh, incredibly provocative. Um, it basically argues that everything you've ever heard about stress not being good for you is completely wrong, using a lot of research. Um, and that, in fact, the more stress you have and that your attitude towards stress will change your life in a positive way, better health, better happiness, better wealth, everything. Um, so it's written by this professor at Stanford. She gives a quick 20-minute uh, TED Talk you can look up. The TED Talk's not even as good as the book, but it's a, it's a rough introduction, and it's so provocative and so radical compared to like all the stuff in general society that I, I'm totally in love with this book. That's one I did make it through. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, it's very good. I started with the TED Talk, and then after yeah, yeah, watching that, I knew I had to read the book. So yeah, and it's about, and it has a lot of health stuff in there. There's a lot of yeah. studies about health, so it's particularly relevant about how often, like, health advice, health research, doctors are wrong. Yeah. So see, stress is good for you. Yeah. So we're going to increase the stress of everybody. Yeah. We're going to double our revenue targets Absolutely. for next month. Yeah, we can do that. You got that? You got it down. Other questions? Let's go back, Herco. Uh, so speaking of stress, uh, you know, being a being a founder, uh, board member, I mean, how do you? What is your personal philosophy or technique to juggling all of those different uh, different areas in your life? So the only one, the only one that causes stress is actually Open Door, 
The other ones are not that stressful, um, mostly because it's never your responsibility. The biggest difference between this job and every other job I've had is I'm never the one to fix something. Like it's always someone else's responsibility to fix it. The most I can do is observe and point out and maybe propose, I can propose a solution that may or may not work, but I'm never like accountable for fixing it. So that doesn't create stress. Like I feel like I'm an armchair psychologist now. So I sit in a chair like this all day. I'm like, so tell me your problems. <laughs> what, you know, have you thought about this? Have you talked to this person? Have you tried this? You know, why do you feel that way? That's basically what I do all day. Um, so it's not very stressful. Um, the open door one, because it's kind of my baby, I definitely feel stressed. I lose sleep over, you know, whenever I'm not happy about something. Um, so that's different. Juggling is part of the job. I think to be good as an investor, and um, actually Mark and Chris and I were talk about this this morning over breakfast is to be good at this job, you have to be ADD to some extent. You literally go from one hour meeting to another hour meeting to another hour meeting. Every meeting is different. It's a different market, different type of founder, different stage of company, different problem set. And you just have to like lightning fast, like change, which is fun. You learn a lot too. Like when people come in to pitch us, like in one hour, they might pitch us like the future of healthcare. And next hour, they might pitch us the future of photo sharing. The next one, the future of databases. The next one, like, you know, rockets. And it's literally, that those are all like representative sample. Then that's just hour to hour to hour. So your brain has to work that way. And there's people who are comfortable like that. And there's people who would freak out, you know, if like they had that context switching at that scale. So I think people who become successful VCs either had that personality to start or, and they are unlocking it and unleashing it, or they have to learn it pretty quickly. It's very hard to be judicious and like take deep studies and heavily concentrate on things. Other questions? Right, Trent. Uh, so I'm an inside sales. I spend my days calling and uh, emailing, trying to write in and get people's time. Uh, obviously, received thousands of cold calls, direct lives, or anything that worked specifically to get your attention and actually commit some time. Yeah, surprisingly, um, I mean, I invested, in, for example, in one company of this random founder who just tweeted at me, um, like literally. Um, on March 17th, like 2013. So you actually invested in a cold tweet? Yeah. Sweet. <laughs> I don't think I've heard of that. That's this good. Company better be good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be a great story if it's successful. Are um, you allowed to say who it is? It, yeah. So it's a company called Ralsi. It's reinventing a search of all things. Yeah. So ma imagine this scenario. You get a cold tweet about, like, I've got this great idea. And you look, look at the person's bio. And, you know, they haven't really done anything. But... Um, and then you, you say, okay, send me an email. And they're like, I'm going to reinvent search. And you can just imagine like, what's thinking, what the first five thoughts that go through your brain. Like, random tweet, I'm going to reinvent search. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, he's a, like, I, I think I've met, met him. him. Yeah, 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 he's yeah, a graph nerd too. So, I mean, he's, he yeah, likes graphs. And, and no, the company's that. real. Like, there's a beta product you can use. Um, we wound up seed, seed investing in a week later. And then our, my friends at Sequoia invested in a Series A, so they've now, you know, pretty reasonable company, 30 employees, um, hopefully to launch, you know, this month, October. Um, so we'll see where it goes. But uh, so, yeah, occasionally something resonates. Um, on an email basis, it's a lot harder. Um, I think the subject line matters, you know, a lot. The font, for me, the font matters. Like, if the font's in some non-standardized font, like, there's no way I'm going to read the email. If it's like in one of these, and salespeople tend to make this mistake, they use these templates, you know, where you can tell and like it alters the font. And then those like immediately get to like the trash. Um, so like they're, you know, as you, I know why people do it because they want measurability and all these things, but it makes it less likely I'm going to read it. 
uh, you know, obviously, if it, the, there's an introduction or some name in, from, in common or there's some hook they use, like, that, that helps a lot. But it's usually the first sentence. So when I was an attorney, uh, as a litigator, and so I write briefs a lot, the hardest part of writing a brief, i.e. the most effort, would go into writing the first paragraph. I could spend a week on one paragraph because I knew that having clerk, that's what judges are going to do. They're going to read that one paragraph. And if you frame that one paragraph correctly, it's going to be like, well, of course you should win. You know, and the same thing is actually true of an investor deck. Um, a good investor deck feels like QED. Like it's like, if do you believe healthcare is going to be transformed? Yes or no? You know, do you believe <laughs> that the key to transforming healthcare is distribution of hospital systems? Yes or no? What you know, are your if, answers on this, by the way? Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> third, if you, you know, if you if you, if you, if the if if you believe that distribution, you know, if you had fifty percent of all the hospitals in the United States using a system, would that be like good? You know, sort of that's the logical structure of a good investor deck. So writing that first paragraph um, or the first line or the subject line is pretty critical. Um, I probably uh, one other thing that at least for me and probably true of society at the moment is I read almost everything on my phone, and so fitting it into the screen real estate, all the key things, because that's how I'm going to consume it. Like, I'm not going to scroll. And people forget that, like, a lot. Like, um, sometimes, like, those attach attachments like the worst thing ever. There's no way I'm opening an attachment, right? So, but if you metagraph, you know, I might actually be able to, in a way that I can read, I might actually look at the chart that shows the revenue going like this. But if it's buried in some attachment, I'm never going to see it. So Wait, it's you like have a, a little, six or six plus? I have both, actually. Oh, okay. In either pockets? Yeah, six plus is for, um, like, basically substituting for the computer. Six is really for like phones, okay. like texting. So we got to get in the size of the six. Six plus might work because if I'm opening up like as a computer and reading email, I might use that. Cool. So what's the second best venture firm in the valley? <laughs> Sequoia. No, just kidding. They're, they're very good. Um, they're quite quite good at what they do. Is that who kind of you have you looked up to anyone outside of your current firm? Yeah, that's where I, that's where I think. I mean, you can always learn. I think learning from competition is a good idea. Actually, mm -hmm. um, now obviously not everything about what your competition does, and it's true for you guys, is public, right? So parsing through, and you guys do intelligence, but parsing through is pretty critical. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I think Sequoia you can learn a lot from. I think there's some things that Benchmark does that are pretty impressive. Andreessen does some interesting things. Um, nobody really has a formula, though. Like uh, Everybody's figuring it out for themselves, um, and they're all backward looking. In our business, we don't get a lot of signals, um, except that they're lagged by years. So one of the hardest things about this job actually is in a company you get metrics and KPIs and if you do your job well you get like advanced like leading indicators. In this job, best leading indicators are measured in like years from when we invest. Um, so, but you still have to make decisions along the way and your ends are small so doing statistically valid analysis is very, very difficult. You can do like some statistical analysis on all the people you reject because there's a lot of them unfortunately but it's hard to project mathematically from the successful companies because there's a handful and anytime you only have a handful to train on you can't do you know, magical math. So when you were looking to do your next thing and you looked at Kosla as a firm, were you looking at other firms too? Yeah, I mean, I, I know. I mean, I certainly knew a fair number of people at other firms. This job is usually something that you're recruited into, not like you you don't interview for. Um, for the most part, like eighty percent of the time, let's say. The reason why is um, you're kind of out on an island a bit without a lot of supervision, and so you have to have a lot of trust with your partners both ways. Like they have to trust me, and I have to trust them, and so it's very difficult to have that trust um, without a pre-existing relationship. 
So most people are like joint firms that they were affiliated with in some capacity before, like they may have been a, a senior executive at a company within the portfolio of such fund or vice versa. Was um, Vinod at Square? Yeah, so well, both Vinod and David, I don't know if you remember David, but two of my three senior partners had been on my boards over the last seven years. I'd had a coastal partner on my board for like uh, 2007 to 13, so like six or seven years. Um, so that, you know, was pretty interesting. There was only one of my partners that I didn't know mm -hmm. um, very well um, before. So that made it a lot easier. Um, but there's a couple other funds that I definitely knew people, you know, been involved in that could have been decent fits. Other questions? Yeah, I was, in the, was just wondering, um, wasn't sure how extensively you guys have covered our entire like recruiting process here at Allen, the cross-checks, but you talked a little bit about you know, identifying talent and stuff like that. I was just kind of curious like, what your thoughts were on how we do things in terms of recruiting. I don't think we've actually covered it in you know, any in detail. Depth, yeah, we no, we covered some it. kind of clever clever ideas like that are like, yeah, maybe the afterburners on it, but not, not, um, not thoroughly, so I don't, I don't have a strong opinion. Yeah, I mean, talking about like, you know, when we're looking for connections or affinity to Ohio and people that may be in the Bay Area, I mean, we talked about that kind of stuff in order to try to recruit. Yeah, I had some ideas about how to get data about spouses Yeah, of, yeah. that might be from Ohio or went to Ohio State. Yeah. We'll, talk about, we'll talk about that. Cool. Other questions? Joel? Yeah, so with, uh, you talked about the importance of uh, roadmap and product vision and communicating that. What are some of the, the more sort of effective ways that you've seen that happen within a company to make sure that all the employees in the organization understand where we're going? So a couple, a couple suggestions or techniques, and you know, every, as said, every company is different. I tend to like keeping companies like on as little flaw, uh, like on one floor or as few floors as possible, because I think you learn a lot through osmosis. So as much of the team as possible, compactly, densely situated. Like I think like 100 square feet per person is perfectly fine, mm -hmm. um, because then people are much more in the loop, and all the alternatives are worse, like the formal alternatives. Um, I like company meetings, like. I'd say once a week, certainly no later than once every two weeks, um, with a presentation, you know, with what's going on, what, what do we care about, how well are we doing, what are we launching. Um, so I think that's a good technique. Uh, I've seen like some more cutting edge stuff that's not for everybody, like whether it's like a tool like Slack or like open email, like one of my favorite companies is coming called Stripe that basically everybody has access to everybody's email. Um, it's a little crazy, but it kind of works. A Slack is kind of a, a mid-step from that, actually, if you think about it. It's like open, an open communication that anybody can subscribe to, um, and that becomes the default way that internal communications are handled. Um, I, like, I tend to have, you know, in my companies, I tend to have dashboards floating all over the place, you know, like with key KPIs, whatever they are, like you basically can't go anywhere without bumping into like metrics. Um, I think if nothing else, just reminding people is maybe a very subtle um, reminder. They may not even literally glance at the dashboard all the time, but just like being infused with it, like sets a cultural signal. Uh, I tend to, yeah, I think those are some of the more obvious ones. I like open conference rooms, you know, with glass walls. Uh, so people feel like they understand like who's meeting with who and there's not like secrets, um, like things, basically things like that. I like um, easily editable documents, like, like for example, Google documents, as opposed to like heavy attachments. Um, because you know, the, the more friction there is in opening something, I hate like actually engineering tools like Jira and stuff, the more friction when you have to log into something, people just don't do it. 
like I used to look at our dashboard at Square and say, what fraction of employees are logging in every day? And I'd monitor that very carefully. And I think of that as like the key indication for is the dashboard useful? If people are voluntarily at scale logging in, that's probably providing them information for their job. And if nobody is, that's not very healthy. Okay, two more questions, and then we'll have one follow up, one last. Jeff? How do you feel a company like Crosschecks can best prepare for its Series C funding? I think the key is to um, frame um, the narrative of what you're building um, as well as possible. Like, so in 30 seconds, it's like a 30 second commercial or a 140 character tweet. Why? Why is this the company that's transforming healthcare? And the better that's done, the better. Uh, then secondly, using the same targeting techniques that you use for customers, um, potential customers or clients, use that for VCs. So a well-targeted well approach and then a really strong story um, are the two key ingredients. And then obviously business traction. I mean, the better the company's doing, the less pressure on the narrative. Um, there are times where the metrics are so impressive that narrative doesn't need a lot of work. Usually that's not the case. There's a, but the better the metrics, the easier it is for everybody. Okay, one more. Matt. Do you have an example of a company that uh, either you personally invested in or you're aware of that is kind of at a similar offset with the job market? Um, kind of like we have heard from the Columbus Alliance. Uh, Not that I've been involved in, I don't think. I do know, well, it's a different. I, I know many companies, some I've been involved in, that have used engineering teams outside the United States for either part or whole of their engineering. Um, Germany, Romania, India, um, Korea. And there's a variety of reasons they've done that. Um, and that can, that can has been sometimes a strategic advantage. It's been a disadvantage in other ways. There's some serious trade-offs, but um, never in a company that I've been involved in in the in the United States itself. But maybe this, maybe this is like going to start a whole new trend. I can see the arguments. And again, my point about some of the disadvantages of, uh, disadvantages of being in the Bay Area sort of are cr cresting. So it may you know. Five years ago, it may not have made as much sense. Now, with all of those disadvantages magnifying, it may be much more logical and actually a competitive advantage, perhaps, to actually be outside. I did do an investment in a company in Texas that has done very well, but it was kind of an anomaly. Um, but we'll see. So uh, one final question. Uh, so I think you're known for kind of your succinct comments and <laughs> uh, kind of terse interactions. Uh, so if you had to give the team here one piece of advice oh in one or two words, what would, what would that be? So you've probably heard the famous Peter Thielism. So when Peter invested in Facebook, you know, Mark, uh, Mark asked him for advice. And I guess I probably learned some of my succinctness from Peter. But anyway, I won't, I'm not, I'll tell you what the Peter story is, and then I'll try to come up with a better one. But Peter's, Peter, Mark thought, oh, my God, we're getting this money from this famous really smart person he's gonna give me this great wisdom so he asked Peter for advice and he famously said don't screw it up <laughs> um, so um, I'll try to be more insightful than that but uh, <laughs> it's a pretty funny story it's a, now yeah. I think like been publicly reported in like movies and stuff um, I think the most important thing is um, 
well, one of two, let's say. Uh, continue to have um, as much, preserve as much as possible of an ownership mentality. The longer that happens, and it won't happen forever, it's really hard to do with 50,000 people having everybody act like an owner. Um, but the longer that happens, the more value you can create, the more in, impact you can have. At some point, it'll start degrading, but the, long, the longer that that's true, the better the company does. Great, no, that's great advice. Well, we appreciate you coming here today to Ohio and spending the day with it's us. A pleasure. And uh, can everyone give Keith a round of applause? <laughs>